Where's Nash? Out there, looking for his original idea. I, I love it how they're all making fun of him for trying to find an original idea in graduate school for a PhD. That's the whole point, an original idea. Oh, my God. Welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and today we are going to go back to, I don't know, 22 years ago, 2001, Ron Howard's lovely, lovely thriller, feel-good drama, I suppose, A Beautiful Mind. This is going to be a solo episode where I talk about a movie that I have loved for a really long time. I saw it in the early 2000s, and part of me, I think, kept that love of the movie alive because I eventually went on to get a PhD, you know, like Dr. John Nash, who the movie is a biopic, uh, who was a real person. So John Nash, real person. Real life battle with schizophrenia, uh, real life phenomenal mind that will go into a little bit of detail in this podcast episode. So a little bit of background on the film itself. So the the movie, what like I said, was directed by Ron Howard, and it was based on a book written by Sylvia Nasser only a few uh, years before that. A beautiful mind. Uh, came out in 1998, so a really three years between the book coming out, uh, the book being a unauthorized biography of John Nash, unauthorized biography. So, book came out in 1998. Brian Grazer, uh, which is the longtime producer collaborator with Ron Howard, just read an excerpt in Vanity Fair and was like, we got to make a movie out of this. And so bought the rights to the film and uh, put everything together in a really short amount of time because the movie, like I said, came out in 2001. So the film stars Russell Crowe, and probably, I think, well, I, I just said I love this movie, and I do. Um, and so it's my favorite Russell Crowe performance, probably just above Maximus in Gladiator. But really, this is my favorite portrayal because he's playing a, you know, he's playing a, a real person. So Russell Crowe is John Nash in a phenomenal performance. Uh, with somebody who is uh, battling and trying to figure out not only being the best that he can be in graduate school, but also dealing with schizophrenia, which we'll get into in a little bit in this episode. 
Jennifer Connelly plays uh, Alicia Nash, uh, his wife, uh, and she does a phenomenal performance as well. William Parcher is played by Ed Harris. Uh, a, a uh, and This is going to be spoiler alerts here. Um, William Parcher doesn't exist, but Ed Harris actually does. And Ed Harris does a really good job, too. Christopher Plummer is in it. Oh, so good. Great Christopher Plummer role as his therapist, his psychiatrist. Uh, Paul Bettany, also spoiler alert, plays a fictional character, his friend Charles Herman, who uh, helps him develop his ideas in graduate school. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, I kind of just spoiled the experience for you, and I'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about schizophrenia in in this episode that I have planned. But um, Paul Bettany doesn't exist to anyone else in the movie, and. Ron Howard does a really good job of hiding that fact until it becomes obvious that Paul Bettany cannot be seen by anyone else. But the first time you view it, it's like, oh, my gosh. I thought people were reacting to Paul Bettany and, and, and they're not. It's wild. Other uh, other bit characters that you see in the movie as friends slash rivals in graduate school, maybe this was the thing back in the day. I, it, it, it's it, it's really it's painful to watch. Actually, the amount of hazing John Nash gets, hazing, ridicule, all this kind of stuff from his fellow graduate students, people in his cohort who are you know trying to do their thing in math and physics and whatever and econ and and whatnot but it, it they could just kind of go off on weird tangents where they just like ridicule him and make fun of him and it's just it's not pleasant i guess maybe this contributes to uh john natch's psychosis in the movie that uh, we'll go through the the accuracy of the portrayal of the mental illness as well. So Adam Goldberg, Josh Lucas, and Anthony Rapp play these fellows, his cohort uh, at uh, at Princeton. This is, movie is set in the late 1940s, by the way, early 1950s, and it kind of goes through, I think, into the 70s? No, 90s. Uh, the end of the movie is in 1994 when he gets the Nobel Prize. That's right. So it, we're talking decades of his life. So the movie starts in 1947, ends in 1994, which I think is a great way to see. And now the the fact that the, the book came out in 1998 and the movie ends in 1994 it works really well, right? Uh, then uh, a few other people are in this movie. Judd Hirsch plays Hellinger, which ends up being one of the professors currently at Princeton. Um, and then a few other people. Uh, you can take a look at IMDb for the rest of the actors if you haven't seen it yet. So the movie follows, like I said, John Nash as he arrives at Princeton University uh, when he receives a uh, scholarship, Carnegie Scholarship for Mathematics with Martin Hansen, who is Josh Lucas. Uh, they are they end up being rivals because of their being co-recipients. But then he meets everyone else, 
And then he meets his roommate, Charles Herman, who is a literature student. The prodigal roommate arrives. Roommate. Oh, God, no. Uh, did you know that having a hangover is, uh, is not having enough water in your body to run your Krebs cycles? Which is exactly what happens to you when you're dying of thirst. So, dying of thirst would probably feel pretty much like the hangover that finally bloody kills you. <laughs> John Nash. Who? Charles Herman. Pleased to meet you. And again, Charles is a piece, a hallucination of John. It's a hallucination of him. Not real. He does not exist. And then so we follow John trying to come up with a new approach to economics. And he comes up with a new concept of governing of governing dynamics called the Nash equilibrium. And this is a real uh non-competitive game involving two or more players where you have to define a solution. Uh, it, I don't understand it. Uh, the movie tries to help you understand it. I don't know if it does a very good job of that, but, you know, it's fine. He gets his degree and he goes to MIT. In the early 1950s, he meets a couple of people, one of them being William Parcher, who invite him to the uh, Pentagon to study encrypted enemy telecommunications because part of his A Beautiful Mind idea is that he's got a really gifted mind for cryptography because they need to thwart a Soviet plot or whatever. And so after this, I'm not going to go through the entire plot. After this, we, re we soon realize that John is going through a series of psychotic episodes and paranoia fueled by hallucinations and all these kinds of things. And finally, his wife, Alicia, recognizes this, gets them help. There's a really terrible scene where a baby where their baby almost drowns. It's really heart wrenching. Um, eventually, though, the movie ends on a high note. Uh, John Nash is teaching econ and econ theory, and he is shown to be taking antipsychotic medication. And whenever he sees somebody new, he asks people around him whether or not he is uh, whether or not that that new person is real. And the movie ends with an older Nash accepting the Nobel Memorial Prize in econ. econ. Uh, for his work on game theory in Stockholm, and they see um, he sees his wife, he sees his son, and everyone's watching them, and they're all like, "Yay!" And so it ends on a high note. The real John Nash's life is much like that, but a bit more tragic. So I believe it was in 2015. They had taken a cab on the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, the cab driver lost control, struck a guardrail, a uh, guardrail, excuse me. And um, the thing is, with passengers in a taxi, you may or may not put your seatbelts on. And unfortunately, they didn't have their seatbelts on, and um, so they were ejected and tragically passed away from uh, their injuries. 
pretty tragic end to the real man's life, although really incredible career despite the challenges offered by the psychopathology of his life. It's really a phenomenal movie, and I love it very much. So let's dive in to some of the nitty-gritty details of A Beautiful Mind. What I first want to do is talk to you all about what schizophrenia is. And so I have the DSM-5, and I want to go ahead and just explain briefly the ideas surrounding psychotic disorders and specifically schizophrenia spectrum disorders from the DSM-5. And so schizophrenia spectrum disorders, which John Nash was truly diagnosed with uh, in his life as an adult. So we're talking about it like acute onset in his 20s and moving through his 30s and so on and so forth. So psychotic disorders are marked by specifically a break from reality. That's what psychosis really truly means is a break from reality and we're talking normative reality normative reality so that is what is the consensus as as to what reality is that is that we perceive things that are truly there or at least that we can observe physically through sensation sensation that's specifically a really important word there like there's actual specific energies coming into our eyes ears nose mouth we can feel with our hands these are specific specific observable quantities that exist in our observable realities right our normative reality now psychosis takes you away from that uh and two specific symptoms of psychosis and uh specifically schizophrenia are are delusions and hallucinations. So delusions are false beliefs. Not to be confused with hallucinations. These are separate things. So when somebody thinks that something is there, that it's not there, or they can hear something that's not there, that's truly not there, nobody else can hear it, so on and so forth. um, Those are hallucinations. Those are not delusions. Delusions exist as a belief in someone's mind. And they are, are, are false, right? The, the belief itself is not real in any tangible way. There's no evidence, observable evidence of the belief. And one of the uh, uh, delusional qualities that is expressed by John Nash, the real one, was persecutory delusions. So he, he felt that he was being followed. He felt that he uh, was part of a larger plot, even though he was just, you know, a, a cryptographer uh, trying to decipher this Soviet plot. And, and you see this displayed and portrayed in the movie by him being followed and being chased uh, through campus uh, on one occasion, and so persecutory. So the the paranoia itself, which is a separate symptom, the paranoia itself was fueled by these delusions. What's wrong with him? John has schizophrenia. People with this disorder are often paranoid. But, but his work. He deals with conspiracies, so... Yes. Yes, I know. 
In John's world, these behaviors are accepted, encouraged. As such, his illness may have gone untreated far longer than is typical. What do you mean? How long? Possibly since graduate school. At least that's when his uh, hallucinations seem to have begun. What are you talking about? What hallucinations? One, so far that I'm aware of, an imaginary roommate named Charles Herman. Charles isn't imaginary. He and John have been best friends since Princeton. Have you ever met Charles? Did you ever come to dinner? He's always in town for so little time lecturing. Was he at your wedding? He had to teach. Have you ever seen a picture of him? Uh, talked to him on the telephone? This is ridiculous. I phoned Princeton. According to their housing records, John lived alone. Now, which is more likely, that your husband, a mathematician with no military training, is a government spy fleeing the You're Russians... making him sound crazy. ...or that he has lost his grip on reality? Now, the only way I can help him is to show him the difference between what's real and what is in his mind. Generally speaking, any false belief could fall under the category of delusion. So if anybody has a false belief in your life, you can call them delusional. The difference and the thing that sets it apart as a clinical delusion is that they are generally bizarre. So they're, they're, they're out there. They don't make much sense. They're clearly implausible. That they, they don't really work, right? So those are the kinds of delusions that make it clinical. Now, if you believe that some, you know, that uh, the flying spaghetti monster is real, uh, all hail its noodly appendages, you could go up to somebody and be like, ha, 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 don't be delusional. There is no flying spaghetti monster. But then you could make a, an analogy to any kind of deity from there, right? So that's the kind of of span the word delusion means. And so we got to make sure that we like are honing in uh, or are honing or, uh, the definition from a clinical sense. Now, hallucinations are perceptions without sensation. That is what uh, the basic definition of what a hallucination is. So that is your perceptual parts of your brain are activated, whether they be your visual system or your auditory system, two of the more common kinds or modes of hallucination, auditory and visual hallucinations, okay? Hallucinations, by the way, aren't specific to psychotic disorders. They are everywhere in uh, the spectrum of psychological disorders. They are everywhere. But they are a hallmark system of psychosis. Okay, And so there is no external stimulus that is coming in through the uh, sense organs, eyes, ears, etc. There's nothing like that, right? There's no specific energies coming from the world that are, or, or the environment that are making these organs be stimulated, okay? And so all of the activity is happening in the perceptual processes of your brain right and so if you are experiencing auditory hallucinations well this is likely going to be something along the lines of hearing voices sometimes they're familiar or not familiar um 
and you hear them as not your own thoughts. So if you're like me, you're a monologuer, and you know what your voice sounds like in your head. You hear it, and it sounds like you are speaking to yourself without actually speaking aloud to yourself. Auditory hallucinations, hallucinations in the form of uh, voices tend to be echoic in nature. That is, they they seem to be coming from outside of this monologuing experience. And many times they are, uh, many times they're unfamiliar. And so you think you are hearing someone talk to you and you respond by speaking to them out loud. Why wouldn't you? We don't speak to our, uh, any, any actual person in our minds, we're not telepathic. We cannot just share our thoughts back and forth. We need to verbalize what we're going to say to these other people, and they do the same to us, and that's how you have a conversation, right? The fact of the matter is, this is a one-sided conversation from an outside observer. The person experiencing hallucinations auditorily are going to reply with speech. A lot of times, people experience these hallucinations while they're sleepy, while they're following asleep, a uh, hypnagogic state is like stage one or or so, right, uh, of sleeping. And so you're, you're, you're starting to fall asleep. And many of these hallucinations can occur. Now, in the movie, uh, we as the viewer, because a part of the movie is this thriller aspect of the uh, disorder of the of the mental disorder is we don't actually know that something is wrong with John Nash until about halfway through. We actually think that, you know, going in completely blind, not knowing anything about John Nash, we think that he is really being pursued by uh, Soviet spies in the United States and he wants to get away from them. And until he realizes that, that, that these people aren't real and this whole thing's not real and he needs to get help and um, if he doesn't take his medication, then he slips back into it. There's a really uh, a harrowing scene, like I said, in the open with uh, his son in the bath and he's supposed to be given in a bath. And then William Parcher returns, Ed Harris returns, and he's like, dude, you need to do this. What are you doing? We haven't seen you in a long time. You are screwing this up for everyone. And, and John's just like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And the bathtub, meanwhile, the bathtub is filling. And as the viewer on the edge of our seats, like, oh, my God, is this real? Uh, is that baby going to drown? Luckily, Alicia finds the baby and saves him. And, and this really uh, makes uh, John Nash have to really think about himself. And when he's on the um, medication in the movie, he's not happy because he, he can't think. Uh, it dulls his, his senses and... It, I mean, there's a reason for dulling your senses because of the delusions and the hallucinations, which then um, lead to the the ep the psychotic episode uh, within the schizophrenia. Why did you stop your meds? Because I couldn't do my work. I couldn't help with the baby. I couldn't couldn't respond to my wife. Think that's better than being crazy? We'll need to start you on a higher run of insulin shocks and a new medication. No. There has to be another way. Schizophrenia is degenerative. 
Some days may be symptom-free, but over time, you're getting worse. It's a problem. That's all it is. It's a problem with no solution. And that's what I do. I solve problems. That's what I do this best. This isn't math. You can't come up with a formula to change the way you experience the world. All I have to do is apply my mind. There's no theorem, no proof. You can't reason your way out of this. Why not? Why can't I? Because your mind is where the problem is in the first place. I can do this. I can work it out. All I need is time. A couple of other symptoms that I want to mention that are expressed in the movie, that are portrayed in the movie. Uh, disorganized thinking, which can uh, in turn come into uh, disorganized speech, which really involves a number of, of like sub-observable occurrences. So first, switching from topic to topic. You see that a lot in the movie. Uh, John is going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and really just moving a mile a minute in his in his hand in his um, in his head right going you know mile a minute nobody is really focused could focus on what he's talking about and and especially with the persecutory delusions you people are real are, are really lost in the movie. And then um, other kinds of observable features of this symptom involve uh, linguistic disorganization, sometimes referred to as word salad. Uh, so people don't understand you. Now, of course, this has been this particular symptom has been in other movies with schizophrenia. But in this movie specifically, Ron Howard wanted to make it seem like we could believe John through his ordeal, okay? So the, like I said, the, like the first half of the movie, first two-thirds of the movie before it starts to deteriorate for him as the decades wear on. And so Ron Howard doesn't actually use this feature, and it's unclear whether or not uh, John, the real John Nash, had this problem. So the real John Nash had a... Uh, so in the movie, Ron Howard does not describe uh this disorganization in linguistic linguistic organization word salad in the movie so the viewer could follow along and it's it's not that big of a deal but um the real john nash in 1959 was presenting a proof uh at the american mathematical society uh at columbia university and it was going to be a proof of the Riemann hypothesis, or Riemann hypothesis. I don't know how to say it. Sorry, Matthews. Everyone in there was absolutely lost because the lecture was apparently incomprehensible. His colleagues immediately knew what was wrong. And so in April 1959, the real John Nash spent a month at McLean Hospital, and he was diagnosed based on his paranoia at the time was referred to as persecutory delusions, which I said, hallucinations, and increasing asociality, okay? So with those symptoms, increasing asociality, which is withdrawing from society, being asocial, right? Some, some introverts will be like, hey, that's me. But, you know, he was withdrawing further and further, sticking himself in his work. In the movie that's portrayed by him spending so much time with this uh, cryptography unit through the Pentagon, William Parcher, and spending, and, and earlier than that, 
in at Princeton spending a lot of time with his roommate, her uh, Charles, Uncle Charles. Um, and so he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, okay, and he was diagnosed with specifically with chronic schizophrenia, which is on the spectrum of disorders. And chronic schizophrenia is a disorder that is progressive. And so without treatment can get worse. Uh, it is defined by psychotic episodes. Episodes can last uh, any amount of time. It really depends on the person. Uh, adult onset schizophrenia tends to be chronic. So uh, anyone who uh, tends to get uh, diagnosed with this later in life tends to have this with their uh, life, tends to have it with them in their life forever right and so he started taking medication for about 10 years for about 10 years uh other things that he attempted to do were things like uh insulin shock therapy not really done anymore actually probably not useful in his case uh, because while insulin does shock, uh, insulin shock therapy, at least the reduction of insulin to shock your system, uh, kind of go into a, a diabetic uh, sugar shock kind of thing, that isn't going to affect a genetic disorder, which is what we're finding uh, about schizophrenia. Not really known in the 1960s that it was super genetic, but something that is going to try to shock the system into resetting isn't really going to work for something that has likely been with John Nash for his entire life. And it just manifested in you know the 1950s when he started down this uh, path of paranoia. And so he tried um, antipsychotic medications. He tried insulin shock therapy, these kinds of stuff. Um, but he generally, the real John Nash, generally stopped taking medication after 1970 and decided to deal with the manifestations uh, of his schizophrenia with trusted partners. Now, of course, he did have episodes after that, but like he says in the movie, and like the real John Nash says, he did not like being on the medication because it dulled his ideas. In 1964, he said publicly that he was... Still hearing voices, but that he was attempting to uh, consciously reject them, right? So he was going to use his faculties to make sure that he would know when something was real versus when something wasn't real. He relapsed in the late 1960s, but he really had to battle with it over the next several decades. And in 1995, after he won the Nobel Prize, he wrote in 1994, quote, I spent times of the order of five to eight months in hospitals in New Jersey, always on an involuntary basis and always attempting a legal argument for release. And it did happen that when I had been long, long enough hospitalized that I would finally renounce my delusional hypothesis and revert to thinking of myself as a human of more conventional circumstances and return to mathematical research. In these interludes of, as it were, enforced rationality, I did succeed in doing some respectable mathematical research. Thus, there came about the research for uh, something that he did uh, in um, French. I can't 
read it. <laughs> the Nash blowing up transformation. Uh, continuing the quote. But after my return to the dreamlike delusional hypothesis in the later 60s, it became a person of delusionally influenced thinking, but of relatively moderate behavior and thus tended to avoid hospitalization and direct attention of psychiatrists. Thus, further time passed. Then gradually, I began, began to intellectually reject some of the delusionally influenced lines of thinking which had been characteristic of my orientation. This began most recognizably with the rejection of politically oriented thinking as essentially a hopeless waste of intellectual effort. So at the present time, I seem to be thinking rationally again in the style that is characteristic of scientists, end quote. I love the end of this quote, and I'm glad I, want, I'm glad I was able to, to share it with you because this quote really <laughs> highlights the aspects of our time, right? So the, especially the end, most recognizably the rejection of politically oriented thinking. So the idea of his paranoia, he is saying really spawned out of the Cold War, post-World War II, uh, communists versus uh, democracies or, or whatever, uh, rep Republicans. And, and so that fueled the delusions and then that those delusions fueled the hallucinations and vice versa, uh, leading him to withdraw from society and that kind of stuff. And so he realized that as time went on and he relapsed or, you know, he had another strong episode going in and out of psychiatric hospitals, he realized that the thing that was fueling this was politically oriented thinking. That is us versus them kind of thinking, in-group versus out-group. And he realized that, you know, maybe I can work with this disorder of mind that's never going to go away. Maybe I can work with this. And think more like a scientist. And he was able to do that for another, you know, 20 years before his untimely death. And I think that's wonderful. Now, in the movie, one of the things that John Nash criticized about this journey, which is, again, pretty accurate up until, you know, some things are obviously condensed and not hashed over and over again because that would make a longer, more boring movie. Of course, the art would not be the same at at um, tugging at your heartstrings because it would just be decades of 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 the slog, right? That John Nash, I in the quote I was talking about, is a very very tough slog that he went through. So in the movie, it's fairly accurate, condensed. Some of the earlier scenes in the 1950s were as as described by Nash in in, in other places, but um, in the movie they show him taking antipsychotics through, you know, the 1990s or whatever. But in the movie, he did not like this portrayal because it shows him taking the antipsychotics um, in the movie willingly, though the real Nash said, I never took psychotics, uh, antipsychotics willingly. I was always under pressure and duress, right? And so in the, in the uh, movie he's shown taking these as he's getting older and there's this one idea like i said a little bit ago where um at the end of the movie somebody comes up to him and introduces themselves and he looks over to one of his students and is like is is this guy is this guy real can you see this guy and of course he, he is real thanks professor goodbye have a nice day goodbye papers and hammers goodbye professor nash Can you see him? 
That was one thing that uh, John Nash didn't like, but the screenwriter of the movie, not Sylvia Nassar, she wrote the book, but Akiva Goldsman wrote the screenplay. He had stated that he did not want the film to portray someone actively eschewing non-adhering to a treatment plan using medication, giving off the message to viewers that it was okay to not take medication and this it'll all work out for everyone. Uh, he didn't want to do that, and so he decided to keep in this an historical look uh, of uh, of John Nash. So the the movie does get. A lot of things right. The romance between John Nash and Alicia Nash, all, uh, all pretty accurate there. His work with the Pentagon and the cryptography and the decrypting of codes as all a part of his hallucination, that was all accurate. Uh, the medication, as I said, not accurate. So what... What did the filmmakers get right as far as the portrayal of the real John Nash's schizophrenia? And what did they uh, fib for the uh, nature of the story? Well, Ron Howard wanted to translate schizophrenia to the screen. It's a difficult thing to do because these are hallucinations and delusions and you got to make them seem real. And so they diverged from the book. And Ron Howard has said that he has... Ron Howard has said that that he did this on purpose uh, to make a visual art form work for John, for John Nash's life. So it's not meant to be a literal representation. It's meant to be based on a true story, based on a real person's life. But this John Nash is kind of, as at least with... His uh, disorder is a facsimile of the real John Nash. So the first thing to point out is that John Nash never actually had any visual hallucinations. He had a ton of auditory hallucinations, but he never had any visual hallucinations. So Charles Herman, Paul Bettany, Marcy Herman, who is um, the niece of Charles, is never. they, they were never um, actually real. William Parcher, which is the Department of Defense agent in the movie, was never real. Okay. They are uh, the screenwriter's inventions. Okay. And so Sylvia Nassar was like, quote, invented, they invented a narrative that, while far from little telling, is the true spirit of Nash's story. So she was all on board for it. Like I said, the biography was uh, unofficial. Okay. Now, um, in real life, John Nash was working for the Rand Corporation with these hallucinations um, and not the Department of Defense. Everyone else, everyone else was real 
in the movie. So those three characters, not real. The Nash equilibrium, like I said earlier, was not well done and really oversimplified. Okay. In the movie, Nash is shown to experience his schizophrenic delusions in in graduate school, but really it wasn't until he was out of graduate school that he experienced his first um, delusional and hallucinatory experiences, his psychosis. Uh, the film ignores any kind of uh, homosexual experiences that he had. The film doesn't include John Nash's divorce from Alicia. Of course, they do get remarried in 2001, the same year the movie came out. Okay. But they renewed their relationship uh, back in um, 1994. Now, in 1970, this was re- really interesting. Uh, so they got divorced in 1963. Um, in 1970, Alicia allowed him to live as a roommate at her house. Um, and then they rekindled their romance after he won the Nobel Prize in 1984. And then they got remarried in 2001, and then they died together in 2015. Furthermore, there was no Wheeler Lab at MIT, and the things that he does, the things that he does don't really hit what the real John Nash did as far as, like, his career and work. Like, glances all over that kind of stuff. I still love the movie despite this. Uh, In the movie... Russell Crowe says in 1994, I take the newer medications, which is accurate from a standpoint of of medications uh, advancements since, you know, the 1950s and 1960s when he was 1960s when he first started having to take medication. Quite different antipsychotics these days, especially in the 90s um, than there were three decades prior to that. But again, as I said uh, a little while ago, the real John Nash did not take medication from 1970 onwards. In the movie, Russell Crowe as John Nash gives an acceptance speech while looking on at his family and his friends uh, after winning the Nobel Prize. In fact, he never gave an acceptance speech. I don't think anyone gives an acceptance speech. Uh, Morbius uh, did this as well. For those of you who, um, you know, got uh, on with the Morbin time, like nobody gives acceptance speeches. They're just announced. They're like, this guy won uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. He's not going to give an acceptance speech. Maybe he'll give a speech later and be like, I thank the Nobel Committee for this award. And this is my decades of work that led to it. But there's no like gala award. Thank you, everyone, for doing that. Oh, easy now. Thorazine takes a little while to wear off. Sorry about the restraints. You've got one hell of a right hook. MacArthur Psychiatric Hospital. I find that highly unlikely. Made a mistake. My work is non-military in application. Which work is that, John? I don't know anything. <laughs> There's no good in keeping secrets, you know. Hey, 
Charles. I didn't mean to get you involved in this. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Charles? The prodigal roommate revealed. Saw my name on the lecture slate. You lying son of a bitch! Who are you talking to? Tell me who you see. How do you say Charles Herman in Russian? How do you say in Russian? There's no one there, John. He's right there. He's right there. Stop. I don't know anything. Stop. I, I don't know anything. My name is John Nash. I'm being held against my will. Somebody call the Department of Defense. My name is John Nash. I'm being held against my will. A breakdown of what is accurate and what is not. The Cliff Notes version here. Uh, now that we're coming to the end of my analysis. The accuracy of the schizophrenia in the movie is pretty well done in this visual medium. That is, schizophrenia is, is shown to be a delusional, hallucinatory, and disorganized thinking as symptoms. John Nash, as a character, displays them all in the movie. I think Ron Howard did a phenomenal job, despite the um, trepidation about medication and not actually following uh, John Nash's actual life in that respect, uh, making sure viewers understood that schizophrenia is a struggle and a challenge, regardless of whether or not you are on medication or not. It might be better if you are, is typically the message that people without disorders want to make sure that everyone understands. And again, this movie came out in 2001. So 22 years ago, the landscape of stigma, while still bad in 2023, is far different than it was in 2001. We are more accepting and more understanding, even though there is still a stigma, uh, now, 22 years on from the this movie coming out. And unless you were uh, aware of John Nash's career, I don't think you would have known that this famous scientist had a struggle as uh, just a general, typical person in the United States or in the world. And so Ron Howard putting uh, this inherent miscalculation at 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 the the life itself uh, of the fake John Nash versus the real John Nash or the caricature of, of John Nash was, I think, an important one. Uh, you, you can criticize it now and and uh, say that, you know, we could that the movie could have been different if Ron Howard had just stuck to what the real John Nash did. And and it would have been a completely different ending, though. It wouldn't have been as feel good. So the 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 idea here that Ron Howard was was working with was that he needed to have the conflict, you know, the rising action, the story, right? The rising action, the conflict, and then the resolution. Well, the resolution in these kinds of movies typically is a feel-good ending. That's the kind of movie Ron Howard was making. Uh, and if you watch the trailer in 2001, you get the the Don LaFontaine in a world kind of of uh, narration where he's like, 
I don't know if it was Don LaFontaine, but the, the narrator goes, uh, an extraordinary mind that ends up in a struggle for its, you know, a struggle for its existence and all this kind of stuff. You watch that trailer and you're like, this is the kind of movie that Ron Howard is leaving you with. He wants you to feel good at the end of it. He wants you to feel good. And so I understand why they made that change. There's a little, a bit of a, a, a digression. The things, so Ron Howard gets schizophrenia itself pretty well done. Pretty well done from a visual standpoint, from a visual standpoint, okay? Adding in those visual hallucinations in the form of Charles, which is a great misdirect, by the way. Uh, phenomenal misdirect. Paul Bettany plays it so well that the first time you watched it, you were like, huh, yeah, and this Paul Bettany guy, he's, he's a pretty cool guy. He's a literature, and everyone talks to him. He's always hanging around people, and he's having conversations, and then there's Marcy and his his niece, and it's it's all great. It's all good stuff. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you. Uh, obviously, you can't relive that. You you know what it looks like at the end, and if you any, any rewatch, I've used this movie several times in my intro psych class and and students really do enjoy the twist at the middle in the middle of the movie they think it's one kind of movie and then bam ron howard's like no it's this kind of movie and it's a phenomenal way to look at it i love it i love it now the things that it doesn't get right are based on the real John Nash, which I've gone over extensively. Uh, John Nash stopped taking medication in 1970. He never had visual hallucinations. And, you know, honestly, uh, John Nash, uh, th there are things made up for this movie that make a better narrative. But he never worked for the Department of Defense and uh, or the Pentagon. There never was a Soviet plot. Although this politically oriented thinking that he was doing did did create this kind of paranoia in his mind, right? So communists are bad and and there there's a plot to to destroy America. He it it is uh accurate in the film that he did not like taking medication that it dulled his mind. He did not like what it did to him, which is why he stops taking it. And so, you know, as as far as accuracy goes in this movie, I would say the disorder Represented decently, okay? It's not perfect. It's better than, I would say, Shutter Island. But it is obviously based on a real person, and so you can make those um, nitpicks here and there of what is true and what is not. But solely as a vehicle for talking about clinical psychology and psychological disorders, I think there are nuggets in this movie that allow it to be on pretty much every list. Every list of films in psych. Every list. And you'll find it on every list since 2001. You'll find it on AMDB, Psychopathology and Psych Disorders list. You'll find it on um, psychmovies.com's list. You'll find it on um, the Cognitive Science Movie Index. I believe you'll find it there. It's not really a cognitive science movie, but you know, it's close enough. Um, I believe you'll find it on there. I think it's got a pretty decent. Um, you'll have to look at that. I haven't been on there in a while. Um, it'll be on my lists once I get around to making um, a re repository that I have not been able to make for a few a few years now. It's coming. It's coming. Whether it's 
this year or probably next. It's coming, and I can't wait to to share that with you. But I wanted to make sure I got this movie out there um, on the pod before I um, before I I did anything associated with this repository, this film pedagogy repository that I'm I'm envisioning that I have so many things and so many notes. So that's going to do it for this episode. Before I uh, sign off here, I wanted to just remind you all that the best way you can support this pod is by grabbing our merchandise at the merch store. So many options to get the logo on all sorts of things. Coffee mugs, hats, shirts, sweaters, pants, you name it. Get that merch. It's the best way to support this channel. Uh, the best way, the, the other way to support this channel. I said channel. Too much YouTube going on in my head right now. Uh, the best way to support the show, it, the other best way to support the show, merch store, is um, liking, uh, subscribing, uh, reviewing, dropping uh, shares here and there. A few years ago, we did the Share with Five Friends. I love how the show has grown since uh, since we did that. Um, lots of, I mean, this is a niche show. I understand that um, people um, have to have a certain interest in listening to psychology and then to movie analysis so i understand it's a slow growth but you know what we're still growing we are still growing and i really appreciate you listener for doing that and then as far as the merch storage goes again look out for those special deals they usually are around my they usually appear around release dates Every three weeks on Monday is what I try to do, what I have been doing. I've missed a few episodes here and there, but you know what? You can always grab those special deals for that merch. And then again, next, you've you've probably heard in my promos during the mid-breaks, new designs coming out next month when I have the time to actually work on them. So next month, by the end of the summer, so by the unofficial end of summer, uh, Labor Day, a couple more designs uh, out there for the uh, consumption of the merch store. Thank you so much for listening to this solo episode. I always appreciate doing solo episodes here and there. Until the next one, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.